You get a goal. You get a goal. The Rangers had eight different goal scorers in the 8-4 to four win over the Penguins Tuesday night. It was a much-needed bounce-back win after a tough road trip to Buffalo. We'll analyze those last few games as the Post's Larry Brooks drops by. Our special guest this week is a former longtime NHL referee and U.S. Hall of Famer, Paul Stewart. All that and more is next on episode 51 of Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special presentation. Welcome back to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, our New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast, but give Up in the Blue Seats a five-star rating. Write a nice review. It's free, and we appreciate your support. Joining the show today in his weekly spot is the New York Post-own Larry Brooks. We'll also be joined by an official. He officiated over a 1,000 games in the NHL, and he's in the United States Hockey Hall of Fame. That would be Paul Stewart. But now, here they are, your stars of the show. It's the New York Post-owned New Jersey's finest, Molly Walker. And Rangers great, number 10, Ron Duguay. Hi, everyone. Yes, it's Ron Duguay. And yes, there's a level of excitement if you are a Ranger fan. And as promised, we try to bring the best guest possible. And this week, I have a friend, Paul Stewart. Him and I spent a little time in training camp one year when he came to Ranger training camp. He did play in the WHA. But after being a tough guy in the NHL, doing a lot of fighting, he decided he wanted to transition into being an official. And because officiating is a little bit, has been in the news lately, we're going to get his thoughts on really what's going on, what happens behind the scenes as being an official in the NHL. But when you think about the New York Rangers, they continue to win. Things are looking good. When you look at goaltending, that wasn't so strong at the beginning. Is now looking like Shesterkin, who's their lead goaltender, is playing really well, is playing really solid. And when you look at Panarin, he's looking like an all-star again. Of course, Fox, who's a little guy, playing big, and he's playing really well. So a lot to be excited about in this last game. When you look at how they played against Pittsburgh, they beat them, and they beat them really bad. And so let's discuss on why is it that the Rangers are capable of scoring eight and plus goals in a game with Molly Walker, my co-host. Wally, Molly, what, do you have a good? Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> Wally, Wally, woo! It's actually really great. It's no, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. This will not be edited. My dad's nickname in high school and college was Wally. So honestly, I feel a connection to the name Wally. Please keep it. I will take it. Okay. Yes, Ron. <laughs> okay, Molly Wally. <laughs> was your dad a big Ranger fan? You got to share then. Tell me about yeah. your dad. Yeah, no, my whole family, whole family was a huge Rangers fan. But yes, Ron, really convincing win over the Penguins Tuesday. The power play was three for three. There were eight different goal scorers. Another 41 save performance from Igor Shesterkin. It was a real team effort from top to bottom. But it's really interesting because this is the third game this season. The Rangers have scored eight or more goals after the nine to nothing win over the Flyers. 
Flyers and the 8-3 win in Philadelphia. And I wrote about this extensively in Thursday's paper. Here's a stat for you guys. The last Rangers team that recorded eight or more goals in at least three different games in a single season was in 1992-93 with players like Mark Messier, Sergei Zubov, Adam Graves, Brian Leach, Mike Richter, etc., or better known as the core group of players who won the Stanley Cup in 1994. Now, no, I'm not saying there's a direct comparison, but the last Rangers team that had this kind of offensive power won the Stanley Cup. There is an abundance of high-end offensive skill on this team. And to answer your question, Ron, as for the kind of blueprint that the Rangers should be looking at from these three games, is the Rangers need three things. A fast, urgent start to the game. Each of the three lopsided wins came after two or three goal leads in the first period. Capitalizing on the power play, and this is crucial because the Rangers are consistently at the top of the NHL in man advantage opportunities and penalties per 60. And then, of course, clutch goaltending. When all three of those things happen, you get these outbursts of an offensive explosion. And yes, it's easier said than done and pretty self-explanatory. But in my opinion, that first one, having a fast, urgent start is really the key here. It's something the team hasn't always done. Well, Molly, having played the game, I can tell you getting a goal early makes a big difference because whenever you're getting scored against, especially for your young team, it feels like you're in a hole. And then you start pressing. But when you score early, when you have a bunch of young guys, there's a level of excitement that happens not only on the ice but on the bench. And so then you keep playing the way you're playing, which is just going forward, playing the way your coach has been teaching you, control the puck, make plays. So you got to give a lot of credit to the coaching because he basically talks a lot about playing without the puck. And we're seeing now when you play well without the puck, defend well, getting in the right place at the right time, you'll come up with the puck. And because they're so offensive mining, I love the way they go up the ice. Now, sentiment is really important to have guys that are good playmakers, and we're seeing that, especially in Strom. So they're creating opportunities. They're gaining a lot of confidence. And, of course, you got to look at the game itself. When you look at Philadelphia, of course, the goaltending was not any good. So you're going to get chances there. And you score on a goaltender early, it gets into their head. Now, you look at the last game against Pittsburgh, a similar thing where you get a goal early against a good team. You get them on their heels. Of course, Pittsburgh is capable of coming back. But it's a combination, like you're saying, of various things. But you got I, I love the coaching of Pat Quinn. Defend well, you'll get opportunities. And sure enough, when you got skilled players, those opportunities are going really well. And tonight they're going against Pittsburgh again, going in there with a lot of confidence, which makes a difference. It's like you got to look at like it's an extension of the last game. The next period, like tonight, is an extension of the last game. So you got to have a good start to the game and set them back on their heels. Be careful with that credit to the coaching staff. The Fire Quinn Brigade might be at your doorstep later tonight. <laughs> You know, I, I've been seeing a lot of that. And of course, you're not going to get the perfect coach. And Coach Quinn is still early in the NHL. He's coming from a place where he was coaching college hockey. I believe there's a difference in college hockey. A lot of it has to oh, do yeah. with the type of player you're coaching. It's basically young men, kids. Once you get to the NHL level, now you have grown men, married men, men with a lot of money, men, <laughs> men who become celebrities. And so it becomes a different... I don't want a, a, a different animal, but it is different. So there's an adjustment period on how you manage those guys. Then there's an adjustment period to playing and coaching against great coaches, right? 
because good right. coaches will adjust to whatever you're doing in the middle of a game. So he's, I believe he's adjusted well. Can you, has he made mistakes? Yeah, he's made a few mistakes, but overall, I think this team is looking really good. They're going in the right direction. And uh, as long as they get good goaltending, they're a tough team to play against. Well, speaking of the fire, David, Quinn Brigade, Rangers Twitter absolutely erupted when it comes to how he's been handling Vitaly Kravtsov. Of course, it has only been two games of Vitaly Kravtsov's NHL career, but in my opinion, they've been pretty encouraging. He doesn't look out of place, hasn't really made any glaring mistakes either. He had 10.45 of ice time in his debut against Buffalo and then 11.03 against the Penguins Tuesday. He had three shots on goal against the Sabres, including one at the end of the third period that came from good positioning in front of the net and a really nice effort in a shot while he was falling. But Linus Allmark absolutely robbed him and robbed me of a storybook game story for his debut. I'm not beat up about it or anything. But the first game, he was on the third line with Alexei Lafreniere and Philip Hedl, but then he was demoted to the fourth line. And like I said, this absolutely sent Rangers Twitter up in flames because head coach David Quinn had acknowledged that Kravtsov is not a fourth line player, that his skill set doesn't fit in a fourth line role. And then he was put there in his second game. But all of that comes back to the fact that the Rangers are coming out of their ears in top six talent. Who do you take out of the top six? At first glance, you say Colin Blackwell, but oh, the Colin Blackwell that has four goals in five games? No, you reward a player like that. You're not going to put Capo Caco on the fourth line either. It's Kravtsov who is the new guy and needs to pay his dues and work his way up, force the coach's hand into not being in the bottom six. But yes, Ron, the Fire Quinn Brigade is out on the hunt for many reasons. <laughs> well, as I refer to him as Vitaly, <laughs> um, let, let, let me just say this. It's a nice problem to have when you got a skilled guy that's playing on that third or fourth line. And let me clarify also, I don't know if you can really say one line is the third line and the next line is the fourth line, right. because I think you're seeing a lot of equal type of skill and balance. So I don't know if you can say he's on the fourth line or if he's on the third line. In my observation of watching them play, I think what happened, the expectations were so high, so sky high, that we were expecting him to come out, control the puck, make plays. And when you look back at his play, he didn't have a whole lot of puck time, meaning have the puck and basically make a play, beat someone one-on-one -on -one or make a great pass. We didn't see much of that. What stood out to me is this. The kid's a great skater, great yeah. skater. Long stride, tall kid. He's noticeable on the ice. Mm -hmm. He's He looks like, like he wants the puck. He's pursuing the puck, but not much puck time. In game one, and I have said this, playing with Heedle, I don't think that's the best centerman for a skilled player on the wing. Heedle, I like. He's always a scoring threat, good with the puck. He'll score goals, but he's not the best playmaker coming up the ice. I don't think he's a good fit. For a kid that needs to get to the needs to get the puck in order to make plays. So we haven't seen a lot of puck time with him. I think it's just a matter of time. But at the end of the day, it's a nice problem when you got a guy sitting on a third or fourth line that could possibly get on the top two lines, but there's just not an opening right now. And as long as they're winning, that's what you're going with. Right. I, I totally agree. And now the Rangers have a big test coming up against the Islanders. Then they have four straight against the Devils. The Rangers are one and two against the Islanders and have been shut out in both losses, which is pretty glaring. Yes, they have a shutout of their own in the one win, but that was the second game of the season and coming off a shutout, like I just said. 
And then the, with the four against the Devils, they're two and two. They lost the first two of the season against them, including the memorable game when New Jersey hadn't played in so long due to a COVID outbreak and had just one practice to prepare. So, Ron, what do you think we're going to see in this upcoming stretch? Well, I think we're going to see a lot of the same tonight against Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh will try to change their game around a little bit, but they love to play. I don't want to call it pawn hockey, but they got a lot of skilled guys that just love to go. And goaltending is not great. So it'll probably be a tighter checking game, but I think there's the opportunities are still going to be there. When you look at the Islanders, that team is built and playing the same way they've been playing. Defense first. And they take the Rangers seriously. When they play the Rangers, they take them seriously. They see their skill, and they try to really shut them down, where I don't think Pittsburgh is really committed to trying to shut them down. And I don't think Washington is really that committed to trying to shut them down. They're willing to go toe-to-toe with them. So that's why the opportunities are there. But when they play the Islanders, it's completely different. All right, guys. Eight. 18 games to go. The final push begins. Five points back. Ten against playoff teams. And then eight against non-playoff teams. Four Devils, two Flyers, two Sabres. Who they lost to the drunk Sabres in overtime. It's a, you know, the, the drunken Sailors beat, beat the almighty Rangers one time. Uh, and, of course, it have, they ended their losing streak before the Rangers, though. So that was good. You know, the Sabres got a win under their belts. Um, and the Rangers got a point out of it. All right, joining us next will, of course, be the legendary Larry Brooks. Up next, as always, is our New York Post Hall of Fame Rangers beat writer, Larry Brooks. Follow Larry on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy and read his stories in the post and at nypost.com. Larry, I wanted to start off with a little bit of news from Wednesday. The Rangers didn't hold practice to make time to get players and staff vaccinated. You had written about the state of the NHL regarding its position on getting the vaccine. So could you just tell us the latest on that front? Major League Baseball um, and I believe the NBA had attempted to incentivize their players to get the vaccine by promising to relax protocols if 85% of the team was vaccinated. And so I checked with the NHLPA actually last week and was told that the league and, and the PA had come to the conclusion that since there was far less resistance to getting vaccinated among hockey players than there apparently is among Major League Baseball players and, and NBA players, that neither party believed that it was necessary or in the league's best interest to change their protocols in order to uh, give players an incentive for getting vaccinated. So, And now you see what the unfortunate circumstance in Vancouver. So I, I don't think that the league would be uh, relaxing any protocols in any event. But uh, the Rangers basically as a team had their vaccinations today. I'm, I'm told that most of the players were vaccinated. Some uh, opted out. And so we'll go from here. And Nils Lundqvist was named the winner of the Salming Award as the Swedish Hockey League's best defenseman with 32 points in 52 games this season. You mentioned in your article from Wednesday that he will compete for Team Sweden in the World Championships. So that makes it unlikely for the Rangers to sign him this season, and they do retain his rights through June 1st, 2022. But what are your predictions on what will happen with him? Will the Rangers have another Lundqvist in the lineup sometime soon? I think so. Listen, he he does have the ability to become a free agent if he does not sign in the next 14 months. I don't see the advantage of him becoming a free agent. The Rangers have a spot for him on the right side. I think he's going to 
be in their opening night lineup next year, and I think he'll be on the second power play next year. He is an exceptionally skilled player, another exceptionally skilled young player who's who's coming through the pipeline. Uh, he's advanced. He's taken major steps this season, and uh, so I, you know, unless. Unless something dramatic happens, I would expect him to be a training camp next year. Larry, uh, a former New York Ranger, uh, Brendan Dubitsky, has been in the news recently. I've always liked uh, how he competed on the ice. And one of the guys he competed against was Crosby. And he seemed to have a lack of respect for him the way he played against him because he was always kind of giving, at, giving it to him and just chirping at him. Anyways, he started this thing, Crosby over Ovechkin. And essentially, he's saying he would take Crosby over Ovechkin anytime, essentially saying Crosby is a crybaby. <laughs> but <laughs> that's why it stirred up a lot of conversation everywhere and how you would take. And I kind of uh, chirped in on that. And I've always believed if you got two equal players of equal value, I go with a centerman versus a winger. Where are you on this? I think so, too. Oh, listen, I like Doobie. I <laughs> He was a different kind of character. He always spoke his mind. And, you know, just just to get off on a, a bit of a tangent here, Dubinsky was selected for Team USA in the 2016 World Cup. And really the only reason to have Dubinsky on that team, with all due respect to Brandon, is the fact that they were going to play Canada in the second game of the opening round robin. There was a three-game preliminary round robin. And the U.S. was going to play Canada in the second game. So, honestly, what was the reason for Dubinsky to be on that team? It was to play against Crosby, to match up against Crosby in the second game. And yet, John Tortorella, the head coach, scratched Dubinsky from that game. So, that never, you know, it, it just, you know, that, that was one of the things that Tortorella did that I saw, I saw no rhyme or reason to. But, yeah, look, Alex Ovechkin's second act of his career has elevated him, I think. I think until the last three or four years, or, or actually probably the year they won the Cup, really, I thought he was a great goal scorer, and that was pretty much it. You know, I mean, listen, a, a great player, but a great goal scorer who was not able to elevate his team didn't necessarily make anybody he played with better. And... Watching Crosby, that's exactly what he did. Crosby always made people better. He elevated his team. And he also came out ahead in, I believe, every Canada-Russia game in which the two players competed. Listen, I would take Crosby, but I do think that Ovechkin, over the last three or four years, he's gotten into much, much better shape. I think, he's, I think he is taking it more seriously. And so I think now it's a, it's a legitimate debate but I would come down on the Crosby side of it. I think up until Washington won the Cup, I don't think it was even a debate. Well, I guess a follow-up to that, and it just came to mind. I wasn't even going to go there, but I have to. When you're thinking Ovenchkin, you're thinking, can he catch the great one as far as goals scored in the NHL? He's got probably another good four years because, like you said, he's taking conditioning seriously, and there's no reason for, for us to think that he's not going to. Do you think he can catch the great Gretzky on the all-time goal scoring? I think he's going to fall a little bit shy. I, I think he would need one 65 goal season to propel him there, and I don't think that's I don't think that's going to be in him. I think he's going to fall short. Okay, well then let's go back to last game. We're talking about Crosby now. 
Last game, the Rangers were able to beat them, beat them bad, scoring a lot of goals. So tonight, going into tonight's game, one player that's standing out to me that seems to be looking very comfortable with getting quality ice time, but comfortable playing well, and that's Colin Blackwell. What are your thoughts on him this past week, the way he's looking now, and the way the coach is using him? Colin Blackwell is is a very confident player. Um, his his self belief and self confidence comes through in everything he does on the ice and in every interview he conducts, interacting with the press. He believes in himself. He has said that he that this is not particularly a surprise to him. I think it's a surprise to everybody else in the NHL. I think it's as David Quinn even said before the game on. Tuesday, he said, listen, <laughs> scoring like this is a surprise. When someone hasn't done it before and scores like this, it's a surprise. He's second on the team in goals per 60 minutes. Maybe he even passed Kreider with his goal um, against Pittsburgh, but he's right there. He goes into the dirty areas. He mucks for the puck. He goes to the front. He does everything on a line that line mates want their line mates to do, right? So the controversy with the way Colin Blackwell is being used is the fact that his minutes come at the expense of a younger player. And I think it's a legitimate issue. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer to it. When a player is put in a spot and he is effective in that spot, it's difficult to take him out of it. And he has been very, very good playing with Strom and Panarin. Of course, Kako played well with Strom and Panarin, and I'm not sure I might play well with Stroman Panarin, honestly. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think there's a comfort zone that Stroman Panarin have from having somebody like Blackwell on their line. I think, I, I don't know that he is Jesper Fast, but I think he's a facsimile of Jesper Fast. And the fact that Stroman Panarin had so much success with Fast last year, I think that creates the situation where they enjoy playing with Blackwell. All righty, Larry. Thank you for your time. As always, we'll chat again next week. Thanks, Molly. We are so lucky to have a different perspective on the game with our special guest this week. He officiated 1,010 regular season games and 49 playoff games throughout a lengthy career as an official, which landed him in the United States Hockey Hall of Fame in 2018. He is formerly the Men's and Women's League Director of Officiating for ECAC Hockey and the Judicial and Discipline Consultant for the Continental Hockey League. Please welcome Paul Stewart. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. I should also mention that you were also a player at one point in time, a left winger, and you actually played with Mark Messier on the WHL Cincinnati Stingers. What were some of your favorite memories from playing with him? Well, and beyond that, I went to training camp with Ron Duguay. <laughs> even so, better and even more notorious with, claim to fame with the, with the New York Rangers and I've had uh, a cross section of experiences and certainly had my opportunities to rub elbows with the very best of the best including as you say Mark Messier who was my teammate Mike Gartner my teammate in Cincinnati uh, Robbie Fatorik in Quebec and Cincinnati and a lot of people don't realize this, but I played against Wayne Gretzky in his first professional game when he was playing for the Indianapolis Racers. And Cincinnati and Indianapolis played an exhibition in Dayton, Ohio in 1978. 
Wow, that's really impressive. What were some of your favorite memories from playing with Marc Messier? It's interesting, and I used to uh, threaten him with telling the world that he only scored one goal, and he wasn't even on the ice when the puck went in. He flipped it from center ice and headed to the bench, and he was sitting down when the puck bounced over the Hartford Whalers goalie's shoulder. It was interesting to see the metamorphosis of that fellow, the way he grew into his greatness, but you could tell early on that he had all of the tools physically, and he certainly had the the mental aspects of toughness, which it takes to, to last in the professional ranks. And when I took him into Sleep Out Louis in Cincinnati for his first professional luncheon with us and a couple of uh, adult beverages, uh, <laughs> we ran into my... We ran into my friend Pete Rose, and Mark was wearing a pair of work boots and bib overall and a, and a plaid shirt, and he went to the washroom, and Pete Rose leaned over and said, uh, big kid, looks like he fell off a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, Ron here, and I keep learning something different about you all the time. I didn't realize you were in that game with uh, Gretzky. So was there an anticipation of Gretzky into this game? And what were your impressions of Gretz in his first game? Well, it's interesting, Ron, that the first time I met him was in the Zamboni pit. Whitey Stapleton, who had been my teammate the year before, was now the coach and GM of Indianapolis. And he had tried to lure me to come to Indianapolis from Cincinnati and keep an eye on this young guy. And so he, he introduced me, and Wayne called me Mr. Stewart, and I, I sort of jabbed him in the shoulder, and I said, hey, kid, they tell me you're a good player. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about anybody that no one's going to come after you. You know, go play your game. And he, he was out on the ice, and he was doing his thing, and gingerly, and he was getting better each period. And I leaned over the boards once when he, he was – close to me and I said hey kid uh, did your mother give you a note to be out this late and uh, <laughs> you know he sort of looked up and smiled a little bit but I, I just heard from him a few days ago going back to Russia to do a, uh, a fantasy camp with uh, Scotty McPherson and and all of the folks the Russian legends and I think that you know he's just a prime example of what good parenting can do his mother and father were the nicest people and he, he's been a great, great addition to the game, but also to the people who know him, their lives. And I think that not making more out of him, but he, he's, he's a class guy. And I, I just, I think I was a lucky fellow to be on the ice with him, you, Mark Messier and Whitey and all, all the good guys that I knew. So Paul, as long as we're talking officiating, you did over a thousand games. Would you, when you look back at being an official in the NHL, was that a bigger thrill being an official versus actually playing some games as a player? Well, the playing part was the youthful aspect of my dream, you know, wanting to play and be in the NHL and all of that, which for a boy in the 50s and 60s from Dorchester, Mass., that was unheard of that an American kid would get to play in in the uh, National League there was only one American Tommy Williams at the time for Minnesota but I fulfilled that dream it, and a lot of people think it was a tainted way I did it but you know I had to use what I had I didn't have a lot of our high school team we played 15 games we played every Wednesday and Saturday and 
for maybe three months and it wasn't much of an experience. I had to beg, borrow and steal to get on the ice to keep working out. I became friends with the Flyers when I went to University of Pennsylvania and they practiced at our rank. I, I soaked up everything I could learn. And then I took Bob Kelly, the Hounds advice. I picked the worst team in the worst league, which was Binghamton in, in the North American League. I started there. And at the end of that year, I was asked to be in the movie Slapshot with Paul Newman. I never looked back. The next year I was at Rangers training camp with you and uh, Don Murdoch and, uh, you know, lots of good players and lots of good people. My roommate, Nikki Fatiu. And so that fulfilled that aspect. But I, I still loved the game. And I tried coaching a few years, but I was refereeing too. And actually I'm standing or I'm sitting right now in the cemetery right near my parents' uh, grave and my grandfather who's an NHL referee and my father are buried there. And I, I picked a quiet place. I didn't want to lose our signal. And basically what I, I tell you is I loved refereeing because I was on the ice the whole time and I, I could decide and make, you know, the game go and flow and how I felt things were happening. And I used my experience and my knowledge of the players and, and all of those things to give you 100% night after night so that the fans, you know, they may have had their opinion of me, which was fine, but I, I, I gave 100%. And I, I think that the players grasped, for the most part, that I wanted them to perform and, and really show their stuff. Paul, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the Tim Peel incident that happened a little while ago now, getting caught on the hot mic saying he wanted to give the Predators a penalty, a sort of makeup call, and he obviously lost his job as a result. What did you think of that whole situation? I'm not happy with what he did. It's an anomaly to me because I was brought up in a house where my grandfather was a referee in the NHL and collegiate hockey, and my dad was a collegiate official, my brothers, uh, my nephew. We, we were taught, you own the call that you make. Call them as you see them and live with it. And the fact is that that's why I was so militant about being in shape and skating and being in position and making the calls. Yes, I made mistakes, and yes, things happened. But I stood up, I owned it, and the fact is that I listened to what my mother said. Two things she said to me when I was depressed and not having a good life between playing and repping, she handed me my dad's resume and said, a busy man is a happy man, get busy. And the other aspect she said to me, which applied more for officiating is, two wrongs don't make a right. If you make a bad call, you can't fix it by making another bad call. You've done what you really should never do as an official, you lied and you actually, you cheated. And you cheated the people and the players out of what should have been, a, a, you know, a good game. And now you've altered the game. And that's no good. And that's, that goes totally against me. And I tell you right now, what Tim Peel did, set back officiating in all sports, because it allows people who know nothing about officiating to think that we're all on the take. And I can promise you, literally, I'm not a guy that gambles. I'm not a big drinker. I'm not a big, I never drugs. Not, none of that. My thrill was stepping on the ice and being out there and giving 100% and walking away. When a guy like Ray Bork skates by you and gives you a tap on the pads, you know you've done a good job. And to me, that was that's what it was all about. Paul, I've always known you as being a very honest guy, hardworking guy, 
And I've always had the mindset when I watch games now, not so much as a player, because I didn't think a whole lot about it because I just concentrated on being a player. I wasn't too critical of the officials. But when I watch now, I'm always wanting to say and scream out to the officials, stay out of the game. Let the players decide the game. Call something if you really need to call the game. Did you have that mindset when you were playing? Just let them play and call less, let them decide. Because you put a team on a power play, that could be a deciding factor in the game. What was your mindset when you were doing the game? Well, my father gave me great advice. Here's a guy that refereed 19 beanpot games in Boston, the Harvard versus uh, Northeastern BC and, and BU. He refereed six NCAA championships in hockey. He refereed state high school games at the old Boston Garden. And he said to me, when I got on the plane to fly to do the 87 Canada Cup final between Russia and Canada in 87, game two, he said to me, you referee that game like it's a a peewee game at the Quincy Youth Arena, and it's the blue team versus the red team because it's just hockey. And you don't start refereeing until they tell you by their actions that they need you to make a decision. Until then, don't interfere. Let them play. People come to see them play. And when you look at the character and the quality of those players, the Russian five, or you look at the, the Canadian power play with Bork and Murphy and, and Lemieux and Messier and, and, and Howichuk and all of those great players, what the hell did they need me for? So I'm just out there as a tourist. And that's the way I approached the game. I'm going to watch and I'm going to be in position, and I'm going to feel the game because I did have experience. And I knew these guys, all both sides. I played against the Russians, and I played against the Canadian guys. And you know what? They didn't intimidate me. I was out there, and I did what I had to do. And the first penalty I called was against Mark Messier, and the second penalty I called was against Mike Gartner. And both of them were my teammates. One guy ran the goalie, and the other guy slapped Krutov across the face with the stick. And you know what? They're penalties. The penalties in any league at any point in time. So my mindset was to go out there and not to referee until I needed to start doing it. And I'm going to tell you another thing, Ron. When you make a no decision, that's a decision. And you can affect the game by passing up a penalty. So I had the Frank Advari recipe for penalties. He said to me, Frank Avari, Hall of Fame referee, and he was, he was a, a supervisor and, and a, a great guide and mentor to me, along with John McCauley. He said to me, if they did it to you and you'd be ticked off, that's penalty. If they did it to your teammate and you'd want to jump the boards and beat the guy up, that's a penalty. And if your teammate did it to one of their guys and you put your hand in your face and said, what the hell is that? Well, that's a penalty. Forget the rule book. Feel the game. You've got experience and you're mature. Get out there and referee when you have to referee. Until then, stay out of it. You want, you want my observations about today's refereeing? I think that no officials in any league get what they need the most. They don't get to practice, so they don't get coached. And the fact is that officiating is all about positioning and sight lines and anticipation, and not overreacting, and not trying to stretch your stuff in front of the bench, and putting your hand up and giving people the palm, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. It's about communication and acceptability. 
And if you can't get that, then I think that you are wasting your time. The NHL, and I'm the reason they did it, they looked for ex-players, figuring that the learning curve would be shorter. Yeah, that's fine. Except I went through three years of apprenticeship. I had 20 years repping, 17 in the NHL, but three years in the Western League, the IHL, the Ontario Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior. I worked uh, international games. I worked college games. I came home on Saturdays and Sundays and would referee high school games around here. And you know what Macaulay said to me? I'm going to kill you or I'm going to make you a referee. 144 games I worked for the NHL one year, 37 and 39 nights in 37 different cities across Canada and the U.S. And you need that type of experience in the greening to grow up because the best fight I ever saw was Wendell Clark and Shane Churla. It wasn't in an NHL arena. It was in Saskatoon in the Western League. And when I got to the National League, Who's Wendell playing for? He's playing for Quebec or Toronto. And Churro's playing for Minnesota or Dallas. And you know what? They knew me, and I knew them. And it's like the Sutters. You know, they only were nice to me when it was haying season. They wanted me to come out and throw the bales up into the barn. (laughs) So, Paul, you're sitting back because the game has changed now, and the reason it's changed because the rules have changed. When you're looking at the rules that are changed, and it's it was suited – for the skilled players, more skilled players. Do you like the rules or would you change anything the way the game is being officiating now? I think one of the things that the plus side of COVID right now is that you have some type of friction, like Boston plays Philadelphia and then they get down to Philadelphia and, and we have, you know, Rangers and Islanders and we have a lot of more of the, what used to be the original six. And you have that type of anticipation and people get to the edge of their seats because this Tenority from Boston is going to run Cook and Wilson and all this and that, and everybody's going to get their uppance. Guess what? The league now is going to figure out if we go back to the 31 teams and we play one game apiece against each team, is that really good hockey? Is that what the Pans are going to pay a hundred and a half for, you know, for a seat in the Blues? I don't think so. I think they're going to have to stay with the regional idea. And they're going to, and that'll cut down on expenses as well. But as far as the rules, I mean, things have changed. When the Philadelphia, when the rule got put in for putting the puck over the glass, the Philadelphia Flyers had a guy named Hextall, and he was to shoot the puck everywhere. He could shoot the puck better than most defensemen. And they put high glass up because they wanted him to be able to shoot it around the glass and get it out. He actually scored a few goals, I think, too. So. Now everybody's uniform. All the glasses the same height. So this inadvertent flip into the stands, you, you have a Stanley Cup final game, and you're going to decide it on a delay of the game penalty? I mean, it's not like the guy meant to do it. And so what they did was they took the judgment away from the referee. I used to say, oh, no, you know, it, it hits something. And, you know, end over end. There's a picture of Bruce Boudreau who used to coach, but he played one night confronting me. His face is two inches from mine. And he said to me, that's a penalty. The puck's over the glass. I said, I don't like the rule, so play on. <laughs> the, the little uh, geographic boundary behind the net, the goaltenders, listen, Billy Smith went behind the net and you bumped him. You took your life into your own hands. And I think that, you know, trying to pad the, the, the goaltenders with this artificial rule to protect them you know, 
the game's about friction and it's about bumping. And if you want to take a run at a goalie, help yourself. Because you run the goalie, just like Probert did one night in Detroit. Hey, uh, Bob, no problem, but five. See you later. <laughs> you get five minutes for charging. And, you you, you know, you got to have the, the, the wherewithal for an official to be able to judge. So they've taken that away from the officials, just like they took away the names on the sweaters. They've made us anonymous. It's something, you know, I said to Gary one night, you think taking my name off my sweater is going to make me anonymous? I can promise you, I step on the ice in Pittsburgh, and they don't like me one way or the other, and they know exactly <laughs> who I am. So, Paul, one last thing. Give us a little bit of an insight because it's around the corner. The playoffs are coming. What's it like for an official? I know what it's like. Well, you know what it's like to go into playoff hockey. The intensity is there. What's it like for an official going and officiating a playoff hockey, especially when it comes down to the finals? Well, I've told people, Ron, and I believe this myself, and I never get past the second round, but in the history of the National Hockey League, four Americans have ever only made it to the finals. So that's the politics and the religion of the of the game. And the people that I worked for just didn't like me. End of story. I had colon cancer in 98, and I had Colin Campbell after that. And before that, I had Brian Lewis. And he just never put me into games that had consequence because he had his guys. And that's, that's a fact. And I don't care what anybody says. But I tell people this. The first round is the hardest round to referee because you've got all the friction and you've got teams that aren't quite as good as others and they make lots of mistakes and they have less capable players. That's why they didn't finish in the first two spots. And they go out and they, they cause penalties. And you've got to be sharp and be a good official. But as the games go on and you go through the second round and then the third, when a team has an opportunity to be on, put players on the ice, they have more and better players. That's why they're there. And when you get to the finals, no guy, and you were a player and so was I, no guy wants to be the one that takes a penalty that costs his team the game. So it's easy to referee, really, because they don't do anything. And that's just the way I think of it happens. Well, we'd love to have you on again sometime soon, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. I have a niece named Molly, so, you know, Molly <laughs> Rose, and <laughs> I think it's terrific. And uh, uh, Ron Duguay is easily one of the most admired guys I know from hockey. And he's taught me a lot of things. I've watched him. He's a great fella. Uh, I watched him play. I refereed. I played when he played, and I refereed games that he played in and he was always a class guy but I think the thing and most people won't realize this he and I roomed together once in Las Vegas and I forgot my shaving cream and I, I was sort of well I gotta run down and get shaving cream and he said no no take the take the uh the lip take the bomb that they give you, you know the moisturizing cream put that on and shave it's better for your skin that true proved to be a godsend for me because I have face like a shoe leather. And, and <laughs> the other thing, I, I now use my roller golf bag cover to travel with. It's, it's easier to pack and unpack, and it's easier to drag through the airport. And, I mean, these are two Ron Duguay things. I mean, he's like the Martha Stewart of, of my <laughs> life, really. That's not as cute, but... <laughs> I did try to support him by buying uh, those those blue jeans, but I my ass is two axe handles wide, so I couldn't get in them. Hey, hey, 
Paul, I got to share something with you. You got that whole thing wrong. The moisturizer was for shaving your legs, not oh, your face. He's got to correct you now. <laughs> Thanks right. for the time, Paul. Thank you very much. I had fun. for episode 51, the Tarmo Ruenanen edition of Up in the Blue Seas, our Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Sarah McCrory for producing the show. Do us a solid and give us a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. For number 10, Ron Duguay, I'm Molly Walker. We are back again next Thursday. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.